Tom Woods Show, episode 1577. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the 2020 Contra Cruise promises to be the best one ever. Not only are we being joined by Dave Smith and Scott Horton, not only is there going to be a roast of Dave Smith, but we're also going to be joined by Phil Labonte, vocalist for the band All That Remains. Get the details and book your cabin at ContraCruise.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. I don't know why it's taken me so long to do this on the show, but... When I had Mark Skousen on, uh, I don't know, a week or so ago, and we mentioned Freedom Fest, I mentioned a debate that we had had there with Gene Epstein and me on one side and John Fund of the Wall Street Journal and Warren Coates, who has many credentials, on the other side, in which we were debating the Federal Reserve. And this happened 10 years ago in 2010. And I thought, why have I never played that debate for the folks here? So I'm going to play that debate for you today. Let me say a couple things about it. First, this was the first time I ever met Gene Epstein in person. And I knew he was a good guy in general. I'd had some uh, interactions with him before. But, you know, he worked for Barron's. He was the economics and book review editor for Barron's. Barron's is a pretty mainstream financial publication. So I thought, well, he seems pretty good, but how good can he be? Was I have to admit, was my secret thought. So I actually kind of thought, I'm going to have to carry this thing because Gene's probably going to be sort of squishy on the Fed issue. He got up and gave this rip-roaring opening statement, and I thought, whoa, okay, this Gene Epstein's my kind of guy. And so from that point on, he was just uh, one of my top people. The other thing I want to say is I'm not happy with my performance in this. I was much too timid. I I didn't speak up enough. I was just much too timid. I, I don't know why I felt that way, because I certainly had the arguments on my side. I don't know what I don't know if it was just that day I was in the wrong frame of mind. I don't know what the deal was, but I could have been much, much more aggressive in this debate. And today I certainly would have been. But all the same, I think you'll find it informative and enjoyable. My opening statement is a little bit on the fast side. And that's because I had to fit it into five minutes and I had so much to say. So that's the explanation for that. So I hope you enjoy this. And here, we, oh, and by the way, I am speaking, the whole reason this whole, whole thing came up is that I'm speaking at Freedom Fest this year, 2020, and I believe that's the first time in 10 years that I've spoken at Freedom Fest. I've, uh, maybe 2011, I, I can't remember. I, I was covered on C-SPAN when I was out there, so that was nice. So that's, um, I've, I've done really well. C-SPAN's been great to me. C-SPAN 2, Book TV and stuff, they've been outstanding to me. So I'm looking forward to getting out there again. Freedomfest.com is the website. It's July in Las Vegas every single year. Hope to see some of you guys out there. And here we go. A lot of people seem to believe that although the market economy is a swell system, it requires the equivalent of a Soviet commissar to be in charge of money and interest rates. This belief is altogether misplaced. The Federal Reserve System, or simply the Fed, is both harmful and unnecessary. Since the Fed's creation in 1913, the dollar has lost at least 95% of its value. If the much maligned gold standard had produced such a result, we'd never hear the end of it. But in our system, the Fed is, for whatever reason, curiously exempt from criticism. Under the Fed, therefore, people have lost an option they once had, namely accumulating savings in cash. Under a commodity standard, people could save for the future simply by accumulating precious metal coins 
which back when they functioned as money, held or even increased their value. No one has that option any longer. In other words, only a fool would try to save by piling up dollar bills. Instead, everyone is forced to become a speculator and to invest in securities markets they know little about and that can wipe them out entirely if times turn bad. As early as the 18th century, Richard Cantillon identified distribution effects as another way inflation harms the general public. The newly created money is injected at particular points. Whoever receives it first, in other words, people who happen to be politically well-connected, get to spend it before prices have commensurately risen, and they thereby enjoy a windfall. By the time it trickles down to the general public, those people have been paying the higher prices to which the new money gives rise all that time. Private and public debt have exploded under this system, especially since the collapse of Bretton Woods in 1971. No one has a right to be surprised when indebtedness skyrockets under a system in which credit can be created out of thin air. The very existence of the Fed, a central bank, institutionalizes the problem of moral hazard. Moral hazard involves an actor's willingness to behave with an artificially elevated level of risk because he believes any losses he may incur will be borne by someone else. Since there is no physical limitation on paper money creation, market actors know the paper money producer can bail them out if things go terribly wrong. They have been vindicated in this belief time and again. They will therefore be more reckless in their investment activity and speculation than would otherwise be the case. We were once told that boom-bust business cycles were a thing of the past because thanks to the Fed, we now had scientific management of the money supply. If anyone believes that today, I'd like to meet him. Artificially low interest rates, courtesy of the Fed, do not in fact yield us a utopia of sunshine and kittens. To the contrary, they artificially stimulate capital goods production and long-term investment. They thereby deform the structure of production into a configuration that the public's freely expressed pattern of saving and consumption will not be able to sustain. When this phony boom inevitably collapses, it is capitalism that is stupidly blamed, when in fact the Fed a non-market institution, is the culprit. I am interested in neither the saccharine promises nor the technical details of the alleged superiority of a monopoly fiat money system. The Fed is the lifeblood of the empire, the great enabler of the perversion of the original American Republic into the world's largest and most powerful government. Even if the Fed did confer a net economic benefit, a contention the great Austrian economists F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises strenuously denied, in fact, Hayek won the Nobel Prize in the process of denying it. Even if the Fed did confer a net economic benefit, the alleged benefit could not possibly be worth the destruction of the American soul. As it turns out, we don't have to make that choice. When it comes to the Fed, justice, economic prosperity, and the values of the original American Republic are joined together. The Fed, its academic apologists, and the drones in our supposedly free press who demonize all dissent from the monetary status quo have done our economy enough damage. For the sake of American freedom and prosperity, it is long past time that, in the spirit of Andrew Jackson, we killed the monster. Thank you. All right, John, you want to go next, Warren? Okay, Warren. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, I want to note that my first trip to Zimbabwe was uh, just a month ago after the collapse of their currency, and our strongest advice to them, they've dollarized and are literally using the, the U.S. dollar, 
uh, was to continue that regime and not to reintroduce their own currency anytime soon. So I would have to defend the Fed today, uh, having endorsed Zimbabwe's embrace of the, the U.S. dollar. Our, our topic is fed up with the Fed, should we abolish? This is not a topic about whether the Fed should adopt a different policy regime, such as a gold standard, but whether we should have a central bank at all. I, I can't resist noting uh, Gene and I debated the topic of the gold standard last year, at which time the price of gold was $970 per ounce. Uh, this morning it was 912. I just thought you would like that uh, market update. So the, the first half of the topic, fed up with the Fed, calls for a review of Fed policy. Has it been good? Has it been bad? What's the scorecard? And I don't want to go back to the entire history of the central banks. Central banks generally don't have a very good uh, history and, and track record, and the Fed certainly has uh, its, its black marks over its history as well. But let's look at where the world has come in the last several decades, because a lot has been learned, and monetary policy has been dramatically better around the world, including here in the United States. So let's start with uh, Paul Volcker's Fed that killed the inflation of the late 1970s when the inflation rate in the U.S. got up to 14% or so. Uh, since that time, it's averaged about, or since two years after that, uh, as he brought the money supply back under control, inflation has averaged about 3% per annum for that uh, several decade period. Real GDP has averaged about 3.2%, which is its average for the last several hundred years in the United States, uh, up through the first quarter of this year. And over the this decade through 2006, leaving out the um, recession that we are now in, it averaged uh, 3% per annum. Over this period, we had about half the number of recessions, this last 30-year period, we've had about half the number of recessions that we did throughout our, our previous history. The Fed's record in these last several decades is not all roses, however, as you know. The Fed did keep interest rates too low for too long between 2002 through 2004, contributing to the housing price bubble. This is true. But low interest rates had other market forces contributing to the low interest rates as well. An overvalued U.S. dollar produced large and growing trade deficits that sucked dollars in from China and other countries, keeping interest rates low. With a gold standard, interest rates would have been even lower uh, until the trade deficit was reduced as all adjustments would had to have been made through domestic prices. Markets are uh, the best way of reconciling conflicting forces and moving the economy forward, but because it's the best system doesn't mean it's without its challenges and difficulties and, and hardships. How has the Fed performed in the last two years? The Fed responded to the financial crisis emanating from the collapse of the real estate bubble in several ways. First, on the monetary policy front, it reduced interest rates in the face of a collapse of aggregate demand to soften the impact of the fall in housing and other asset prices and 
prevented a collapse in the money supply after September 2008, September of this last year, by doubling base money. These traditional central bank functions helped restore confidence in the financial sector and moderate the uh, inevitable recession as the economy deleverages and adjusts to new realities. In this area, the Fed has performed very well, not repeating the mistakes that it made during the Great Depression that contributed to the Great Depression being what it was. On the credit policy front, the flow of credit froze up as financial markets began to realize the extent of potential real estate losses and started to deleverage. The Fed introduced new facilities to help specific credit markets, buying uh, mortgage-backed securities and commercial paper, to name two. This is not a traditional central bank function. The Fed should have had greater faith in the market's ability to develop new credit channels and to redirect credit to the most productive uses. In this area, Fed performance was helpful in the short run, but harmful in the long run. It was inappropriate, and the Fed should unwind these activities as soon as possible. On the failing institution resolution front, the Fed joined the Treasury in ill-advised, damaging, and for the Fed, inappropriate and possibly illegal market interventions to save investment banks and an insurance company. This was motivated by the lack of legal tools with which to resolve failing non-banks in the ways banks may be resolved, but it was an end run around the law at a time of panic. It is also hard not to wonder whether personal treasury relationships and past and potentially future employment on Wall Street clouded the judgment of Treasury and, to a lesser extent, Fed officials. One way or the other, the rules of the game have been changed and are now unclear. The long-run damage will be difficult to repair. So should we get rid of the Fed? The answer, I'll, I'll provide mine and you can then come back with, with yours. The uh, answer depends on whether we believe not having a central bank would be better. In, in time, alternative arrangements could be developed to clear and settle payments across different banks or different institutions of payment and to print and coordinate the value in the market of uh, private currencies. Am I? Can you wrap, can you wrap it up? Yeah, okay. The benefit would be clear rule, the benefit of purely private monetary system would be clear rules with very strong market discipline and private behavior. These are important benefits. The costs would be periodic financial panics and crises that would very likely overturn the system with massive government intervention. Let's not uh, throw out the, the workable for an imaginary uh, utopian uh, best solution, and I will leave that to uh, my, my partner to elaborate. All right, Gene, you want to give your point of view from the abolish the the Fed standpoint. Well, it's fun to be appearing uh, in opposition to John Fund. We both work for Rupert Murdoch. Uh, he acquired Barron's and he acquired the Wall Street Journal. Indicates to you that uh, maybe Murdoch's world is a mansion of many rooms. Although the killer anecdote I like to hand people is that Murdoch's publishing arm also puts out Howard Zinn's left-wing People's History of the United States. Uh, the man puts profits 
before politics. And indeed, the fundamental reason why I am pro-capitalist is because free speech, freedom of the press is something I hold dear, and private ownership of the means of production is a necessary condition to the maintenance of free press and free speech. Uh, similarly, Similarly, the abolition of the Federal Reserve is necessary in order to bring back government accountability to the people. It's fairly simple what has happened over the last few centuries, even before the Federal Reserve was created. The kings wanted to fight their wars. They couldn't borrow enough. They couldn't tax enough. So they started to print money. That's why the government began to control and get interested in controlling the money supply. In the, uh, in the more recent period, under Bismarck, under uh, FDR, it became apparent that the welfare warfare state cannot be answerable to the people it's got to depend on the mechanism of printing money, and the Federal Reserve is central to that. The only way to get back to our republic, the only way for the government to be answerable to the people, not to propose programs before it knows how to fund those programs, is that we abolish any means by which the government can control the money supply. Now, notice I haven't said anything about economics yet. I'm talking about fundamental political values that are vital to the maintenance of freedom. That's the fundamental reason why we have to abolish the Federal Reserve. And indeed, not just abolish the Federal Reserve, but understand that any government control of the money supply, because control of the money supply by the government has been ubiquitous for centuries. It was very, very apparent in the 19th century, before the Federal Reserve was created. That's also why we had monetary instability and corruption, or indeed the War of 1812 was financed uh, through the printing of money by the New England banks, and then the protection of those New England banks by the government. All of that sorry history depends on government control of the money supply. Now, why else would I abolish the Federal Reserve? Because it causes business cycles. Warren just spoke, Warren Coates on the opposition, just spoke about what the Fed did and didn't do right after the collapse of the economy over the last couple of years. Well, let me give you a little anecdote that does not even require an understanding of Austrian business cycle theory. The driving force of the real estate bubble was something known as adjustable rate mortgages, ARMS. They were disproportionately where the mortgages were coming from, where, where the bad debt was being created. Now, adjustable rate mortgages are directly tied to the one-year rate, and the one-year rate is directly dependent on the federal funds interest rate set by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was directly, in that sense, financing the housing bubble. And indeed, on top of everything else, the crowning irony is that Alan Greenspan himself got up in front of a bunch of realtors and said, arms are wonderful. Adjustable rate mortgages are a great deal. You ought to sell them more aggressively to your customers. Uh, that's one simple anecdote that I suggest Warren Coates embrace, understand, in order to appreciate the fact that the Federal Reserve was part of the problem. It created the bubble. And then afterwards, it runs them, it's the drug pusher, and afterwards, it gets to run the methadone clinic and claim that it didn't push the drugs in the first place. So simply put, in order to have political freedom, in order to have economic stability, we need not just to abolish the Federal Reserve, we need to declare that money and interest rates are the province of the free market. When uh, Congressman Ron Paul asked, 
Ben Bernanke, do you ever get the interest rate wrong? Ben Bernanke said, yeah, yeah, you know, we do occasionally get it wrong. We try, but we get it wrong. And Ron Paul said to Bernanke, well, then why not occasionally, why not eternally leave the interest rate setting to the market? Because you get it wrong, maybe the market will get it right a little bit more often than you do. All right. And now, uh, lastly, uh, we'll have John Fund give his uh, view from a pro-Fed standpoint, and then I'll get the ball rolling on the debate with a, a question to, to all of you. So, John? I'm not going to wear the pro-Fed hat. To paraphrase Shakespeare's Mark Antony, I come neither to parry the Fed nor to praise it. I come to be realistic. And what we have is clearly a deeply flawed institution. But I would remind you that while certainly I think the Fed can be said to have exacerbated some of the business cycles and perhaps prolonged the period by which we flush out malinvestment, there were panics and there was market instability that led to the creation of the Fed. The famous panic of 1907 being an example, the one that J.P. Morgan had to step in and, and uh, ameliorate at the last minute. The Fed exists for a reason, uh, providing short-term financing during periods of financial panic. Uh, I would remind you the 30-day commercial paper market dried up completely last fall. There was a panic. Uh, there was a sense, not just in the government, but among the business community, that something had to be done to inject liquidity into the market promptly. The, the uncertainty the Fed causes is a real cost. On the other hand, my worthy opponents have spent 10 minutes bashing the Fed without giving you any sense that there's an agreement on their side as to what should replace it. And of course, yes, the market, they say, should replace it. But exactly what structure, what mechanisms, how do we get from there to here? And I'll return to that theme. The Fed has taken on far more than a central bank even should take on. It has taken on responsibilities regarding full employment, uh, protecting depositors through an insurance system, many other things. As Richard Ron points out, uh, the Fed has taken on so many responsibilities, it's become like a large fire department that has a fixed percentage of its employees who are arsonists. So as it gets bigger, there are always more fires. Well, I propose there is another course. We have a Fed that is targeted, simplified, streamed down, and focused on its mission, which is preserving the integrity of our monetary value. New Zealand had the same problems in many respects in the 1980s. They had a financial meltdown. They didn't become a banana republic. They became a Kiwi republic because even Kiwis were in short supply in New Zealand. What did they do in response? They created a completely independent, hermetically sealed off central bank. They appointed a board of governors that were tasked with one job only, and that was to keep the rate of inflation within certain targets. And the head of the central bank was rewarded financially if he met those targets and he was penalized if he failed to meet those targets. A simple, simple mission, a simple set of clear rules, and a simple set of incentives to put those in place. And New Zealand has prospered ever since. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, but neither is slaying the monster without an idea of what you're going to replace it with. Now, Ronald Reagan who was a follower of the Austrian School of Economics, had some interesting debates when he was in the White House with his private advisors about the Fed. 
And he always would end these discussions with, well, show me how to get from here to there and we can talk about it. Until then, I think we should recognize that while the Fed creates uncertainty, having a debate about abolishing the Fed without having a clear idea of what's going to replace it creates further uncertainty. Now, I submit to you, at least from the point of view of the business community and from entrepreneurs, during that period of time of turbulence in which we debate the role of the Fed without a clear idea of where we're going, we're not going to have economic growth. We're going to have perhaps more instability. So I submit to my worthy opponents, I share some of your critique. I share perhaps some of your values. But I also understand that we live in a practical world. In conclusion, I always liked the unicorn when I was growing up. The unicorn is a wonderful creature to behold. I'm pro-unicorn. But I've yet to find one. And I don't believe in spending all of my time searching for the unicorn, thinking that I will find it, because so far I haven't. The same thing with a world in which we have abolished the Fed without a clear idea of what to replace it is a search for the unicorn, which we have yet to find on this earth. Thank you. Thank you, John. You mentioned President Reagan, and one of the most interesting uh, interviews that I had was with President Reagan, and at that time I remember the discussion we had, one of the things that we were talking about was the tremendous power that the Trilateral Commission and the Council for Foreign Relations have in influencing what goes on in government. And even at that time, they had an, an espoused view of creating a global currency and what they called New World Order. Ironically, after the G20 meeting, the Financial Times herald that the discussions were so wonderful because headlines, they created a new world order. So my question is, what do you all think practically is going to happen? Uh, Jim Sinclair says that China already wants a super sovereign reserve currency to replace the dollar and it's supposed to be a critical part of uh, central banks reserves. Do you all think that that's the direction we're going? And if not, what do you think is going to happen? I will simply say that uh, the Fed could use some competition. And if it comes from the Chinese communists of all people, that may not be the worst thing in the world. Uh, by the way, I think that we are on the verge of having a, finally a real debate about the Fed because it has been one of the most secretive and least transparent of organizations. Ron Paul's bill to audit the Fed now has a majority of members of Congress in the House behind it. And as much as much as I don't want the Chinese running a separate reserve currency, the threat of the Chinese setting up such a thing may actually force members of Congress to ask more probing questions, as Congressman Paul has been wont to do, and question its role. Because if the Fed through its incompetence and through its bungling, manages to lose the status of the dollar being the major reserve currency in the world, uh, there should be some accountability, and even, even obtuse members of Congress may demand that. But, yes, go ahead, respond. If this were 1985 and we were discussing the future of the Soviet Union, I would hope that John Fund or others might say, you know, Ronald Reagan has suggested that maybe the Soviet Union should come to an end. Uh, no, what will happen? Well, nobody would have suggested that uh, it was going to just collapse. 
uh, it was going to implode. Uh, John Fund, if someone were to ask him, well, what are we going to replace uh, those systems with? How are we going to replace, what are we going to do with collectivized agriculture? Uh, I believe in unicorns, but after all, uh, what, what is the market going to do? Well, the nature of the market is a certain amount of entrepreneurial discovery. However, there is an enormous body of literature on the free market in banking. He just mentioned Ron Paul. Ron Paul has written about this, uh, about competitive banking. It's not rocket science. There's a great deal of insight about what the free market in banking will do. So the question about where are we going? Well, the more we try to understand the spirit of Ronald Reagan, who thought the solution is for the Soviet Union to unravel, for the Berlin Wall to come down, the more we will appreciate the idea that maybe the solution is to abolish the Fed and then understand a little bit more about the nature of free market so we can appreciate how a free market in banking will work, about which there is a vast and very well-informed literature. I I can't, as someone who covered Ronald Reagan throughout his presidency, I must remind you that the Soviet Union collapsed to the surprise of everyone almost in this room. Oh, yeah. It could have happened in an entirely different way with many casualties and much destruction. So while Ronald Reagan wanted the Soviet Union to disappear, he also recognized that it had to be done in such a way that there could be the least possible Casualties. Quite right. Let's and, and I think it's incumbent upon you not just to say the market will provide, but to provide us with a roadmap, a GPS system by which you will trace how we can get from here to there with the least possible damage. You have not done so. You have not carried the burden of proof. And therefore, your position fails. It is not enough to say abolish the Fed. You have to say how and you have to say with such ability that you will not increase market insecurity and you will not create economic conditions in the short term that will make it even harder for us to return to economic growth. Tom? Well, I think part of, wait, is this working? Grab Gene's no mic. How about this one still? No. Well, all right, Gene. Uh, some kind of racket with the microphones going on here. I'm sure there's a natural explanation. Um, I, it's I the think, Fed. Yeah, Not right. control. <laughs> I think... Um, the reason we probably didn't get into a blueprint is that, I mean, as it is, I could barely get five minutes in. But um, I've actually got right on my blog right now, TomWoods.com, there's a blog entry called How to Return to Gold. And it links to the most important free market economists who have looked at this subject. So uh, Murray Rothbard's book, The Mystery of Banking, which is out in a very nice second edition in 2008, explains exactly what he would do. Now, his plan involves, in part, requiring the Fed to disgorge its gold holdings and then distribute those gold holdings to the commercial banks in proportion to the dollars that they have, and then redefine the dollar's value such that it would it could absorb the gold and vice versa. Uh, there there have been, shall we say, adjustments to that since. But so, but that's that's Rothbard. Henry Hazlitt, who wrote Economics in One Lesson, from which many of us learned economics. Uh, I link to him as well. I think probably the best person to go to though is a Spanish economist. I think one of the best economists in the world who has a treatise that if people read it would revolutionize the world and it's called Money, Bank Credit and Economic Cycles and the author is, is Jesus Huerta de Soto and it is a brilliant treatise and the last chapter is nearly a hundred pages in which he explains how a free market system in banking with no government special privileges, no special sugar daddy, but where banking operates according to the same rules as the shellfish industry or anything else and gets no special privileges, how exactly that would, that would work. 
I understand that. Before you go to another question. Go ahead, go ahead Warren. Um, I, I certainly uh, support greater accountability and transparency of the Fed, and therefore probably Ron Paul's legislation. I haven't read it, but from what I hear of it, I, I would support it. Uh, your question was about uh, a world currency. Mm -hmm. uh, gold was the last world currency that we had. It had many virtues, worked well for quite a long period of time, but was overly rigid, and as a result of that, ultimately collapsed. Any enduring system, and the goal of a world currency, I think, is, is worthy, uh, needs to be pragmatic uh, if it's going to survive. What the governor of the People's Bank of China uh, was proposing and referring to was the special drawing right, the SDR of the International Monetary Fund, and I think that's back into the debate and uh, d deserves some serious consideration, as uh, not as a replacement, but as a competitor uh, with the dollar and with the euro, which are the two primary reserve currencies in the, in the world today. Well, wasn't that dishonesty, though, that, the, that uh, we went off the gold standard? That's a political decision. I suppose I'm the one who's supposed to answer that. I, okay. I, think it, I think it was dishonest to abrogate the gold clause and, that, uh, and, and thereby null and void contracts that people had entered into. That's a different proposition from going off the gold standard as the basis or as the peg to which the dollar is, is fixed. Uh, and that's a, a long, complicated topic yeah. that you're well, not going to give me the time for. It, it, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, it, isn't it being proposed that just the opposite of, of the Fed having less powers, that the, the government is proposing that the Fed will have the authority to bypass Congress and bail out virtually any entity that deems to pose a systemic risk? And I understand that there are like 500 banks that are on the list that are allegedly too big to fail. Somebody want to comment on that? Well, the, the basic theme involved there is uh, starts with perhaps reading a brief essay that Alan Greenspan wrote when he was 40 years old, uh, when he was a Randian, called Golden Economic Freedom. The world went off the gold standard because of the rise of statism, the rise of the welfare warfare state. Uh, and uh, the economists, unfortunately, were behind that. Uh, the, uh, green, the trajectory of Greenspan's career is, is, uh, is really the whole story. He caught Potomac fever at the age of 48, and he himself became a status. It's great fun running the Federal Reserve. Uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve gives the economists a seat at the tables of power. They don't, they just don't have to be just economists and journalists. They can actually call the shots. It's very heavy, heady, it's very invigorating. Uh, but, uh, but beyond that, what is happening right now politically? The Obama administration, Obamanomics, is basically stealing the country from the American people, and it's doing it through the printing of money. Uh, deficits don't matter, because that's what Dick Cheney said, and Dick Cheney was a part of that same problem. Uh, deficits don't matter. We can print the money. We don't have to ask the people to pay for it in taxes. We can simply print it, impose it on them, arrogate the resources to ourselves, and then we don't have to worry. That's the nature of why this is all about politics, and indeed, uh, Alan Greenspan wrote about that very, very succinctly in Golden Economic Freedom. That's John, what it's all about. Gene and I agree on many of the things that may happen in the next couple of years, which would mean vastly increased inflation uh, by traditional standards and, of course, the devaluation of the dollar and other financial problems. 
That will trigger, I hope, a robust debate about the mistakes that got us here and how to get out of them. Uh, part of that debate should include what my worthy opponents are proposing. But we also need another proposal. We need a proposal for people who are not going to buy that package, and we need a proposal for a slimmed-down, streamlined Fed along the New Zealand model, and that other countries, by the way, have adopted it since then. And I'm not saying it's politically easy, but it's certainly more politically easy than what they're proposing, and it has worked. Tom? Okay, but if we want to talk here about... Uh, what's right and what's wrong, what's the best outcome uh, we can aim at, then it seems to me that this solution whereby we should have just a nicer Fed that isn't going to do as crazy things, I mean, this is like, um, should I have a door with a lock on it, or should I have a door that has a piece of paper that says this door is locked? I mean, what, what, why, would I, why would I support that? And, and, but beyond that, it seems to me there is no moral or economic reason to have this money monopoly system. And I think people who favor a system like this, that as I showed in my remarks, actually does harm people, and I actually believe causes far, far worse financial problems than, than any other system. Uh, I think we need to, it shouldn't be the people who favor a free market who have to be on the defensive. It should be people who support this monopoly system. Now, F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 1974, in the late 70s began to argue that there is no reason, if you want to be a non-utopian, to believe, to expect governments to give you good money, especially governments with the ambitions of the United States. You have no reason other than mere superstition to believe this. And he says, historically, it is mere accident that governments have been in charge of, of the money monopoly. And why do you think that is? Because because they're, they're just looking out for the common good. They just want to give us a good medium of exchange we can use for our transactions. Of course not, because they want to be close to the source of the production of money. It seems to me if we believe in the free market, then all this Rube Goldberg nonsense about special drawing rights is utterly superfluous. What is to prevent the free market from producing money the same way it produces any other good? Money is a good. What's the problem here? Warren. There is no problem with market provided money, and most of the money that any of us use is privately produced in the, in the private sector. What the government has a monopoly on, and, and what a monopoly is needed for, or at least highly helpful, is the unit of account. All of the private monies, your, your Visa credit card and debit card and, and uh, mobile phone payments, which are very popular in Kenya and other African countries, all kinds of ways of paying things, uh, not just the old-fashioned check, which is also privately produced by, by banks, uh, all have their value denominated in a monopoly unit of account, the U.S. dollar. We cannot easily give that up. Uh, you mentioned too big to fail and a list of 500 banks. That's a fiction. There, there is no list of banks that are too big to fail, and it's certainly nothing like five, 500. But I, I think giving the Fed, I very much agree with, with uh, John's points, giving the Fed added powers to deal with systemically important too big to fail institutions would be a very big mistake. Uh, we, we certainly need more transparency and information about what non-bank financial institutions are actually doing. Uh, the AIG debacle was a big surprise to everyone, but I favor, as John does, stripping the Fed of its supervisory powers, sharply narrowing 
its focus on monetary policy, preserving the, the value and integrity of that unit of account. And again, virtually all money is privately produced, so let's not raise uh, fictions here. Well, let me pose a... a may, may, may I just speak to Wine's point about the unit of account? Look, look, Wine, a brief economics lesson. The market prefers a single unit of account. There are very, very powerful market forces that produce it. In fact, the, its government, with its many currencies, the yen, the shekel, the, uh, the dollar, the kanukbuck, all of those various competing units of account uh, are bad for the economic system. And indeed, world traders only use one unit of account because those are market forces. They tend to use whatever's at hand. They tend to use the dollar. So indeed, I only suggest to you that you go on, uh, on my colleague's reading list and try to understand that the single unit of account is the one thing that happens when a gold standard it happens. Everybody wants gold. Uh, the world wants gold. There would be a single unit of account globally. One, one tiny, tiny, I promise, two-sentence point. Also, I think it's misleading to say that, you know, the money is all privately produced. This is like a great private system. Yes, with a gigantic monopoly privilege of legal tender. So, of course, obviously, people are going to accept this. The type of system we have now of fiat paper money being that, that is convertible into nothing has never in history emerged spontaneously as the result of people rationally observing the good consequences it has. To the contrary, it has always been imposed by violence and through monopoly force and through the police prohibiting alternatives. So why don't we let people, instead of using SD, you know, other things, let them use gold and silver and take the, the, um, the privileges off of the dollar? I'd like to pose a, uh, a quickie. There's no prohibition on, on gold, uh, gold or silver. Uh, anyone can own, own it. You can transact in it uh, to your heart's content. But the market has revealed its preference not to make gold the center of the system. I'm not trying to say something against gold. I'm just, talk I'm just talking about the, um, the market's revealed preference, which is for the U.S. dollar, not for gold. I'd but like if we to have pose them all on a level playing field for a change, and people could make voluntary choices, uh, and they could actually make contracts, and they could and they could require payment in something other than the dollar. That's the problem. The reason we can't have genuine competing currencies is that everyone's required by law that they've got to they've got to accept the crummy greenback. Not true. Not true. Well, I uh, I have to add in that one of the other things that President Reagan said to me was that. He believed that that individuals should make their own contracts in gold if they want to protect themselves, and uh, he he acknowledged that there was no country that ever survived when they dropped the metallic backing. Although he stopped short of saying that we needed to go back on a gold standard. And people make such contracts today. Yeah, right. You know, like, but it's got to be, look guys, the simple confusion is it's got to be two kinds. You and I can contract in onions if we want to. We can contract in apples. But there are legal tender laws that require, if there's a contract that's going to hold up in the courts, it's got to be paid in legal tender. Therefore, only if two parties to the contract agree to it can it survive. That's why it's not a level playing field, the legal tender laws. It's a simple enough point. And the taxes on gold and silver, too. Yeah, that's right. All right. I we're running out of time. I'd like to pose one very practical question. We've been talking about theory, but what has happened is that the entire global financial system has melted down and virtually every asset has been plundered. Uh, and as a result, we've had 
a deflation in terms of if you would define it as far as falling prices. And over the years, of course, there's been a debate even prior to this meltdown that we might reach the point where the Federal Reserve would be pushing on a string so that no matter how much credit they wanted to create in the economy, it just didn't happen. So obviously, to this point, that's what we're experiencing. Now, the question is, Bert Doman points out, and a number of deflationists say that, okay, so uh, we're, let's say hypothetically the, the Fed's expanded up to 11, 12 trillion, whatever, uh, just a trillion here or there. And, and, but conversely, there's been 50 trillion that has just vaporized globally, that's just gone to money heaven. And so he thinks that in spite of the inflation in terms of monetary expansion that the Fed's going to do, that we're not going to get out of this and that the dollar is not going to go into hyperinflation. So I guess what I'm really asking is a timing issue, but that affects all of us as, as investors. Uh, and so I was wondering if you all would comment, do you think that deflation is going to continue? for a, period, a long period of time and then convert to hyperinflation or what? Where are we stand in this cycle? Well, I think, I think one fundamental confusion uh, that should be cleared up is that the basic process uh, that we're talking about is a process whereby the government finances its operations not uh, through taxes, not through legitimate borrowing, which would be very limited, by the way, if it ultimately had to be paid for by taxes, but through the printing of money. That's what's happening now. Now, the secondary effects of the printing of money are what the question addresses. Uh, but the fundamental problem is, is that power is slipping from our hands even more than ever because of the ability of the government to finance these huge deficits, and the huge deficits, by the way, that elder care is going to, are going to charge us for the printing of money. The secondary effects are somewhat debatable. Uh, I personally believe that price inflation, uh, which is what uh, the mainstream normally confuses with inflation, is not going to occur in the next two, three years uh, because we have such slack resources. We have such a high unemployment rate. It's, it's almost never occurred that you've had, that, that you could have that kind of acceleration of inflation with those kinds of slack resources. So very possibly we will not have severe price inflation. We will, however, have the other fund fundamental insidious evil of government deficits, looming government deficits, financed increasingly through the printing of money as the Obama administration decides to spend money on whatever it wants to and arrogate human resources in whatever way it wants to. Yes, Warren. Uh, I'm sure Gene is a better forecaster than I am, so I won't, uh, I, I'm going to make a, a different comment than your question. A big confusion that we've heard up here is that the Fed determines interest rates. Completely false. The market determines the interest rates. The interest rates we see are market determined. The Fed uses the federal funds rate overnight in interest rates as a mechanism for doing what it does do, which is control the money supply. That, that's the way it gauges how much money it's going to put into the system. So don't think that the Fed determines interest rates, nor that they determined interest rates e even during the criticized period of 2002-2004, markets determined those interest rates. There was a global glut of savings in the world. Much of it flooded into the United States and kept interest rates very low. Tom? All right. Well, on the, the global savings glut, I'll, I'll leave to, to Gene. But, um, but
But in terms of the market setting interest rates, well, we're not saying that the Fed goes to a local bank and says you should charge X percent on this loan. I mean, we're not making a trivial claim like that. We're, we're instead saying that when, when the Fed increases the money supply through the banking system, the banks now have more to lend. And so something's got to give here. If they're going to lend it, they're either going to have to lower their lending standards or they're going to have to lower the interest rate at which it's offered. So indirectly, the Fed does determine it. Well, and not well, just into, that, that's the key point, that it does it through the expansion of the money supply, but that's also the reason why I offered to Warren the simple anecdote of what truly happened uh, over the last several years uh, as the bubble was happening. The Federal Reserve set the overnight interest rate at 1%. That's impossible for a market to ever believe in because it was beneath the rate of inflation. That would not be a market-determined interest rate. That interest rate was moving the, the one-year rate, and the one-year rate was setting the very, very low adjustable uh, rate mortgage rate. So in that sense, sometimes it does control interest rates at the short end of the yield curve, but more importantly, as my colleague pointed out, it basically affects interest rates all along the yield curve because of its ability to expand the money supply, because those, those loanable funds weigh on the interest rate. All right, our to, time. Sum up, to sum up, I would simply say my colleague Steve Moore at the Wall Street Journal reports that his source of the Treasury Department says they're printing money 24-7, literally. 24 hours a day, they're printing money. So some of where we're going to see that show up in the economy. That will give you an opportunity to have a great debate about the Fed's role and its mistakes. You should have two plans when that debate happens. Plan A is what you may really want, and plan B is what you can get. And it's prudent and rational for all of you to want your plan A if you wish it, but to also have a plan B in your hip pocket. And we've tried to provide both for you today. Uh, well, the, the uh, timer has been flashing, indicating that our time is up. So I'd like to uh, thank our panel very much for participating, and I think it's been a very informative and lively debate. Thank you very much. All right, folks, before we go, I've got a very interesting and perhaps provocative blog to tell you about, started by a Tom Woodshow listener. It's called a apolitesociety.org. Maybe some of you will know the reference, but he says that the point of it is to consolidate all the knowledge and insights he's learned from both military training as well as training courses he's participated in over the past few years. And it's focused on training and establishing responsible personal and community defense, the likes of which have generally been lost to us. He says at his blog, you can expect to learn anything from the fundamentals of shooting to land navigation, as well as you can expect more advanced topics like tactics and building a fighting team of like-minded individuals. And of course, he reminds us that an armed society is a polite society. Well, there's a lot in store for you if you head over to apolitesociety.org, which I will link to at tomwoods.com slash 1578. And remind you, of course, that you want to start something like this, make sure and get your hosting through me so you can get free publicity from me, along with wonderful goodies like membership in my private bloggers group. This is separate from my supporting listeners group. I have a group where we help each other. And I also will send you some tutorials and uh, help you out in other ways. So get the details on that at tomwoods.com slash publicity. And tomorrow, we're going to talk about fascism and other topics. We'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.